Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who, like Henry Nouwen, is thoughtfully and freshly exploring the concerns and issues of Christian spirituality today. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Our core purpose is to share Henry Nouwen's spiritual vision so that people can be transformed by experiencing themselves as God's beloved. Now let me introduce you to my guest today. I am honored to be joined in conversation by Dr. Terry LeBlanc. Terry has over 42 years of indigenous community-based experience as an educator in theology, cultural anthropology, and community development practice. Terry is the founding chair and current director of NATES, an indigenous learning community. He serves as an adjunct professor at Acadia Divinity College, Sioux Falls Seminary, the University of Divinity in Melbourne, and Tyndale University and Seminary. Author of numerous articles and assorted book chapters, Terry has won several awards for his varied writings. Over the years, I've had the privilege of interviewing Terry for various documentary and television projects and know him as a wonderful and engaging, well-informed communicator. We could not have a better person to articulate Indigenous perspectives on theology and practice. Welcome, Terry, to our podcast. Hi, Karen. It's good to be uh, with you this morning uh, from uh, lovely Prince Edward Island. It's uh, nice and sunny here today, though we're getting that usual mix of maritime spring weather, uh-huh. or pre-spring weather, I should say. Now, I, I want to start by asking you a question. In 2010, for your work on the creation of Nates, you received the Dr. E.H. Johnson Memorial Award for Innovation in Mission. Terry, what is NATES? Well, NATES is an acronym, as I'm sure you could imagine. Um, and, and originally, when we founded uh, NATES uh, almost 25 years ago, it stood for the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Um, and so N-A-I-I-T-S. Um, oh, three or four years into our tenure as an organization, we were approached by people from Australia who'd been good friends of ours for many, many years, and also from New Zealand and uh, the Philippines, uh, who asked if we could come and engage their communities with similar conversations, as well as help them uh, potentially create structures of Indigenous theological education, not unlike what we had created here. And in recognition of the fact that um, all of the people inviting us had been and were, I suppose, under you know consistent colonial uh, engagements and occupations, and however we might want to think of those things, um, for as many years as we had in some cases, we changed the name to simply Nates, an Indigenous Learning Community, so that it wouldn't be perceived to be any uh, kind of colonial agenda at all. So, so Nates became simply uh, Nates, an Indigenous Learning Community about uh, 20 years ago now, um, and uh, we just abbreviated it to the acronym NATES. Well, that's, that's good to know. It's interesting because our audience for this uh, podcast really stretches right around the world. It's certainly a North American audience, but we hear from people in Australia, New Zealand, and 
all parts of the world. So it's it's good to have that in mind. And obviously, you think in those ways, if that's the kind of education-rich uh, uh, setting that you've created, I'm sure. Now, you mentioned that you'd like us to focus on what it means to live into health and well-being with the author of The Created Order, the human community, and the rest of the created order of which humanity is a part. Where, where are we going to start with that, Terry? Well, uh, part, of, part of the work that we have been doing in Nate's community, and, and we describe ourselves as a learning community, so it, isn't, it isn't as classically hierarchical as you might imagine other um, tertiary theological or other educational uh, endeavors for that matter. Uh, we describe ourselves in fairly flat terms as a learning community where uh, students and faculty are not necessarily easy, easily differentiated. Um, and, and, and our main focus really has been to take the uh, experience of Christian faith and life that has been in some cases very much imposed upon indigenous peoples around the globe and try and unpack that, uh, decolonize it, if you will. Now, some people would say, why would you even bother doing that since Christianity um, you know, has been very much and, and perhaps continues to be very much a colonial uh, religious imposition um, in indigenous life? Why wouldn't you just leave that entirely alone and sort of step back into whatever your traditional religious or spiritual belief systems are? And, and part of our response is to simply say that, that um, just because Apple computers um, are created in the United States and manufactured in China doesn't mean that they aren't utilizable you know, around the globe by people who choose to use Apple computing products. And for, for that matter, IBM or the Microsoft operating system or what have you, um, indigenous people engage virtually everything that other people in the globe engage we simply want to engage it in our own terms, on our own terms. And, and that's what decolonizing uh, in, in our experience is about. So we're, we're about the business of decolonizing theological reflection, uh, biblical reflection, community development um, practice, and so forth, uh, seeking to engage it from a philosophical, epistemological, ontological framework that is our own. And so when we talk about living into health and well-being, I know that sounds like a sort of rambling uh, response to your question, <laughs> Karen, but I'm getting there. Um, so when we talk about living into health and well-being and doing so as Indigenous folks, um, we talk about being in right relationship with the one who authored the very existence we have and the existence of what we determine is indeed a created order. Uh, we, we want to be in right relationship with spiritual powers that exist within this created order. And sometimes those spiritual powers are, as our listeners might imagine, sort of those quote unquote ethereal spirits that might be a part of, of the environment in which we find ourselves living. But sometimes those spiritual powers are spiritual forces, as it were, that are evident in our created order. And today, as we talk, we're, we're um, experiencing one of those spiritual forces, those spiritual powers in the conflict that exists within Ukraine as, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine has unfolded. And so there are spiritual forces at play there. And, and if you were to look at the biblical text, 
Paul would describe them as spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And, and I would echo that uh, very much uh, so. And so we are to live as human beings in right relationship with the one who authored the created order and with other spiritual powers that exist in the created order, neither seeking to serve or be served by them. We're to live into right relationship with one another in the human community. And that goes to the very comment I made a moment ago about, about what does it mean to live in right relationship with people um, in, in Ukraine, in Russia, in, in Latvia, um, in other parts of Europe, in South and, South and Central America, in, in Australia and so forth. Uh, what does it mean to seek to not oppress them or be oppressed by them, um, not mistreat them or be mistreated by them, uh, not seek to impose our uh, agendas um, upon them, but rather to engage in, in conversations about our, our respective agendas in life in ways that we can learn from one another without, without seeking to harm one another. Um, and then finally, of course, what does it mean for us to live into health and well-being with respect to the rest of the created order that we're a part of? I mean, humanity, irrespective of whether you're a, a faith-filled person or a person of faith, if you want to put it that way, or a person who um, has a, a more evolutionary perspective, uh, uh, if, you, if you will, on, on how we came into existence as human beings. Um, the truth is that if we don't find a way to live in right relationship and relatedness to the rest of the created order or the rest of the environment that we're part of, if you will, um, we, we not only harm ourselves, if you want to be strictly human focused or anthropocentric about it, but we harm everything else that's a part of the created order. And so how do we navigate living in a good way? with all of the rest of the creation that we're a part of. Uh, there, there's nothing that human beings do that doesn't have implications for every other part of the created order, every other part of the environment. So, so when we talk about that in the Nates community, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. You know, I enjoyed so much in some of your articles, you really draw attention to a reality that, that was very striking, and that is so often in in quotes, Christian theology, we tend to almost begin our Christian theology with uh, the third chapter of Genesis, you know, mm -hmm. the, the fall, mm -hmm. and we make it all about that. And we we miss where it really begins in Genesis 1 and 2, and then taking it to Romans, the whole business of, 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 of God redeeming all of creation. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because I think that's a place— where, in a way, if we go to that, we can unify. We can really be speaking the same language. Yeah. Um, when when I first began to do, uh, well, uh, when not just myself, but when, when my colleagues and friends of the last 35 years or more began to think about uh, theological um, uh, engagement, to, you know, doing doing theology as you were. It's, it's a bit of an oxymoron for many indigenous people. You don't do theology, you just live as a spiritual being within a spiritual creation. But when we began to think about um, things in a, in a more classically theological way um, and, and looked at it from a biblically theological perspective, we, we began to realize how, how much the Western church in particular has spent uh, its time if you will, examining the nature of and the transmissibility of sin and the and the fact that the created order had had collapsed um, 
um, as a consequence of our first parents to use the Genesis narrative, um, having, having broken the law of God or broken the commandment of God. And yet, as we look at it as indigenous folk um, and others who are non-indigenous working with us, as we look at it, we, we don't see a legal and moral framework articulated in the first two chapters of Genesis, where either we see um, a description of a covenant relationship, uh, the way in which uh, humanity and the rest of the created order is to live together under the auspices of its creator, of, of the auspices of God, uh, so as to live well with one another. And so that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is about, is how do we live together in this created order? Um, and how do we do so in a respectful fashion? How do we do so in a way that that um, you know uh, preferences uh, one another and preferences the the benefit of of every aspect of of the created order? Um, so if you start there, if in in essence, if you ask the question, when it was functioning at its best. Um, what did it look like? That's what it looked like, Genesis 1 and 2. I know it's an abbreviated description. I know that we can argue over what Genesis uh, 1 and 2 uh, really is about from, from the sort of a literary perspective or, or, or otherwise, but there's this grand narrative of God's creation, if you will, living in the way in which God intended it. And so rather than start Genesis 3 where the wheels have fallen off, where our first parents have broken the covenant relationship or the covenant of creation, um, we think it's better to step back a couple of chapters and say, what was the thought, the idea, the plan, the intent of God, of the creator, uh, at that time of, it, of bringing forth the creation? And again, not to argue over how it came into existence, the methodology, the mechanisms, or otherwise. We're not interested in that kind of argumentation we're simply saying um, what did it look like what was the intent of it what how did it function together and if you start there and ask questions about what it looked like at its best it seems to us a better starting point than saying now that the wheels have fall off, fallen off what do we do about it um, and and it and it places if if you will in the center of the biblical narrative the tree of life at the center of our conversation not at the periphery. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always found over the years, as I ask people to tell me about the, the, you know, the Genesis narrative, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, inevitably people focus on the fall. Inevitably, if people talk about the garden scene at all, and I say, well, tell me about the garden scene, tell me about the trees in the garden, inevitably, the vast majority of people, almost in the 98th percentile, uh, will say to me, oh yeah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is of course the tree from which our first parents consumed the fruit, which led to the collapse of the covenant. Um, and, um, and instead I say, well, what about the tree of life? It's the one that's named first in that, in that description in Genesis. What about that one? Let's talk about that one. Uh, <laughs> because it does reappear at the end of the biblical narrative in Revelation 22, and now, now there are two trees of life, one on each side of the river of life flowing from the throne of the creator, God. And, and the fruit of those trees is produced 12 crops in season. And the leaves of the tree, it says in the narrative, are for the healing of the nations. So why don't we talk about those? Why don't we talk mm -hmm. about, about what it looks like when it's restored 
to the intent and the plan of God. So let's step back and say, what did it look like in the beginning? What is it looking like at the end? And how do we move between those two places? I love the fact that you bring us then to Romans 8 to, uh, you know, 18 to 25, talking about not just the redemption of mankind, but the redemption of all creation. That to me is is rich and exciting and and I think if it's if it really is truly our our uh, understanding well I guess we don't think that there's that whole big understanding that brings us all together where in a sense you know we're dealing with all sorts of issues of reconciliation because we deal with this uh, doctrine of discovery and things that were you know almost treated as if nothing was God didn't show up in North America or in other parts of the world until Europeans showed up, which is craziness if you think of think in that way. But we have we have a different kind of a sense of the wondrous uh, creative God uniting us all. Um, let me ask you a little bit about being spiritual. What exactly does it mean to be spiritual from your perspective? And is there a different spirituality between a Christian spirituality and an indigenous spirituality? Help me with that. Well, that, that's a good question. It goes to, um, you know, some of your your comments just a moment before that. Um, you know, the fact that the whole of creation is the focus and activity of God through the person, work, life, teaching, death, resurrection of Christ um, um, in in all of creation, that the whole of it, you know, as Paul says, is, a gro- is groaning, awaiting its own re- uh, redemption, you know, awaiting its own um, uh, uh, restoration, uh, if, if you will, even as we are waiting. Um, that implies that there's a spirituality about the whole of the creation, not just about humanity, that is of concern to God. Um, when you look at Job, um, Job talks about that in Job 12, that, that the whole of the creation um, is of an intimacy with its with the Creator, um, that uh, often Western Christians uh, and the Western Christian traje- trajectory has relegated to some secondary concern, if it's of concern at all. Um, so the spirituality piece, uh, spirituality is ontological in nature. In other words, it's an impartation at the origin, uh, not as a subsequent um, thing. So it isn't about behavior, which is oftentimes what Western Christianity has made it to be about. So when people talk about Christian spirituality, they talk about devotional life, about Bible reading, they talk about fasting and prayer and so forth, as if that's their spirituality. Um, and, and really, that is not their spirituality. If, in fact, humanity is created in the image and likeness of God, uh, it doesn't say human beings, when they behave in this particular way, are created in the image and likeness of God. It says human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, period, full stop. Um, and, and the question isn't about whether they are of a spiritual ontology or nature or origin, but rather about what they do to express that which is within them that is of a, um, a an ontological nature, their spiritual essence, existence. And it, and it isn't that the physical body uh, somehow contains in its inner core this little spiritual nugget. It's we are spiritual throughout. We're infused with the spiritual essence of God. Um, we are we are his image and likeness. And, and, and I don't fully understand what that means. I don't think anybody really does. Perhaps, perhaps somewhere down the road as we 
uh, transition from life to life and move from this side of the journey to the next will understand that, I suppose. But, but what it does mean is that we are, we are possessed of a spiritual essence that needs to find its expression, uh, that needs to be given expression, that needs to be given um, a, re a release into our, our life and, and into our living of that life with others um, and with the rest of the creation that makes sense. And so, so what we do uh, isn't our spirituality, but it's an expression of that which lies within us um, that needs to be released, that needs to find its release. And we then choose whether that release will be Godward, God-directed, um, other-directed, or internalized, as it were, and turned back inward so that it becomes uh, you know, very egocentric as opposed to uh, creatiocentric, um, as opposed to outward to the ward, the rest of the creation we're a part of, we can choose to turn it inward and, and be very egocentric about our spiritual uh, nature, uh, about our spiritual essence and being. And, and so um, what I found interesting is that when I was uh, told as I came to a faith experience um, and, and putting my, my faith in Christ, um, I, I was told then that there were certain things that made me a Christian or continued to make me a Christian that were behaviorally framed. Um, you know, the way that I prayed and, and, and so on, of the things that I've, I've just talked about. But, but it implied that if I failed to do those things in a particular way, that I was now unspiritual. And, and, and that's something that we have found it important to resist because it places our acceptance before God on our behavior, not on our being. And, and God accepts us because of our being, because of who he's created us to be, because of uh, who Christ has made us um, to be the fullness of uh, or, or the fullness uh, of, in our expression of. It, it, it isn't about what I do. What I do is an expression of what's inside, not not the essence itself. So, so spirituality is not about uh, behavior, but about being for me. Um, and and the being then gives rise to uh, the doing and the behaving and the attitudes and so forth. And and and. You know, we, we get into this uh, conundrum where we ask questions about whether or not somebody who's not a follower of Jesus can be a good person. And, and I mean, the evidence is abundant around us that, that yes, they can. Um, the question isn't whether they could be a good person. The question is, um, out of whence comes that goodness? And, and to me, that goodness must come from the fact that God has imparted it to them within them um his image and likeness and and whether whether they're even conscious of it that that goodness needs to find expression and and does conversely the person who lives in an evil way has denied that very thing within them perhaps that god has placed there um, that that uh, is inviting a good response a positive response a, a a response of blessing and not of cursing and and so forth uh so so it's this complicated interplay we are spiritual because we're created um we're we're invited to give expression to that which is within us which is spiritual um and we choose then the focus and form that that will take it's interesting to broaden our thinking 
just just as you were you're describing it there indigenous spirituality is so important to bring into this this world that we're living in and to value and i feel like it brings more of a balance to god's whole creation gives us better eyes to see and better uh, hearts to listen to yeah I, I, again i think um much of what I was taught in my early days as a follower of the Jesus way was very much Western. And it was, it was about um, circumscribed behaviors. It wasn't about cultivating the interiority. That's one of the things I loved about Henry Nouwen. Um, Hen- Henry, Henry was so good at cultivating in the interior so that the interior could find expression in the exterior. And, and, and it isn't, you know that we need to become monastic or anything of that nature that's that's not the implication of that in my mind but but it was it's the idea that when we cultivate the interior that which god has placed within us um that spiritual nature that that is resident within every human being um and resident within the rest of the creation in a in a in a perhaps a different way and again that go, that that goes to the conversation paul has with us in romans that that the creation itself groans in the same way that Paul describes um, human beings groaning in their prayer closets. Um, you know, when when they're they're dumbfounded, they're confounded, they they aren't sure how to pray. The Spirit intercedes in us with groanings too deep for words to express. Paul says, and he then goes on to talk about the creation itself groaning, using the image of a woman in childbirth, uh, groans in travail. Awaiting uh, its own redemption, even as we, we also do it, groans awaiting the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. And you, you have to ask the question if you're an indigenous person. Anyway, you have to ask the question now: Is the groaning in the same in in, in that same interiority um, as is in in the rest of creation as it is with humans? How does how does the creation groan in the in that way as Paul talks about it? Um, if, if there isn't a spiritual ontology about the rest of the creation, uh, spiritual essence and being, is it the same? No, it's different. Um, but it's nonetheless something God has placed there. And nonetheless, something that, um, again, in, in Job 12, Job says, you know, very tongue in cheek to his counselors, um, you know, surely wisdom will die with you after he's heard from them. And and then he goes on to say, but I have a few things to say. Why don't you ask the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, the animals that walk upon the land? Why don't you speak to the very earth itself? Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And the Western community wants to um, personify or anthropomorphize that or or create it as a metaphor or something of that nature. And, and yet for the indigenous community, it's it's clear and obvious that the creation speaks um we we just don't have the ears to listen most times terry tell me uh you mentioned henry and i'd love to know a little bit about your relationship with henry now and did you know him as a friend or did, did you meet him through his books tell me a bit about that well um i first met henry um many years ago when the first street level conference um in canada was unfolding and uh henry and sue were were part of that um uh, along with people like Rick Tobias and so forth. Um, and I was invited into that. I, 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 w- I didn't have any particular status that someone would want to invite me to um, to bring, but I was invited into that uh, those conversations in the planning and you know people like 
you know, like Tim Huff and so forth. Um, you know, so there were numbers of people. Um, Can you just explain to our audience what Street Level was about? What What was the conference about? Oh, oh yes, certainly. Sorry, sorry, I was off. I was off reminiscing. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. But I think the the audience around the world will go. I wonder what that was all about. So tell tell us just a bit about why was Henry there? Was he was he the guest speaker or was he just one of the one of the people attending. Yeah, yeah, no. Street level, street level was a conference for street workers, for, for, um, for Christian workers who were who were on the street, um, you know, as we used to describe it, in the trenches, day to day, working with those who were in poverty, in dire circumstance, who were being oppressed by um, addictions or oppressed by. Um, you know, relational trauma that they had not been able to circumvent or well, any range of things, um, you know, just just dire poverty and and people who worked with them day in and day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, street level became a, a place where they could be ministered to and, and cared for and and honored and, and respected for the work that they were doing. And so street level and the places in which we held it were opportunities for them to be to be nourished and cared for uh, in in good ways uh, to to honor them and uh, and so forth and so there were a number of them that took place over the years um, I forgot how many now um, but but it was in that period where Henry and Sue and their work uh, of course Henry's work in Larsh and other other activities um, uh, took a, a, a significant place. Um, you know, Henry was respected as a teacher to uh, to many of those who were part of that that uh, uh, street work community. That that um, community of people who ministered to the need, people in poverty and need. Um, and so he was part of of helping to shape the thinking about it. Uh, he he, of course, he and Sue spoke. Sue Sue Moseller, uh, folk spoke uh, with uh, some regularity were looked to for um, er, er, you know aspects of guidance and encouragement in particular ways of viewing um, poverty and those in poverty and how to minister effectively to those who are in poverty um, and so I got to know Henry through that and you know we weren't fast close friends that that would be inappropriate to say but but we were good more than acquaintances um uh and uh had a very much a respect for henry's thinking and his person and how he uh how he sought to live out um you know his uh calls and commitments um uh, he was influential in many of our lives Oh, that's lovely. It's lovely to hear that. It's, uh, you know, we come to that little spot where we kind of meet at that point of perhaps it's a book we've read of Henry's or uh, maybe even the daily meditations. But, you know, you, you've obviously got to see him in action, which was, I'm sure, uh, I will say, I'm sure, entertaining along with inspiring knowing Henry. Oh, indeed, he was entertaining. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he was, he was, um, he reminded me of, of Jesus' reflection on, uh, here's a person in whom there is no guile. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just lovely. Um, you know, I, I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about reconciliation. I think this is such an important time and moment and opportunity. And I think all of us want help. We want help 
to know how to see reconciliation truly happen. Um, and so you give us some help. Give us some help right now and say, here's where we begin. Here's where we put our foot in the water and move forward. I know that many are well down the road, but there are some that just need to be encouraged even just to begin in terms of what their attitudes and their mindset will be. Help us with this. Mm. Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's a re- reconciliation particular here in Canada, but, but certainly there are other pockets, of course, where the ideas of reconciliation um, emerged and were, and the, you know, the flames of, of reconciliation were fanned sometimes more vigorously than at others. Uh, and, and in some places more so than in others, but the idea of, of reconciliation um, implies as, as we've sort of unpacked it over these last years implies that there, there was once a relationship that people had that somehow fell into disarray and and um, you know became people became alienated from one another and and at odds with one another and so forth and so people have often borrowed the biblical injunction to a ministry of reconciliation as per you know paul's words um but sometimes those fall very flat because they imply an event or activity um takes place uh at the end of which uh we we you know, sing a hymn, um, you know, perhaps uh, hold hold a toast together and, and then go our separate ways now having been reconciled. But but that's not the that's not the understanding that we have in the indigenous community that I work with, um, nor is it, in my view, a good understanding of the biblical view of reconciliation. Um, in some cases, and perhaps in more than and the majority of them, um, we haven't had a relationship to begin with uh, of any consequence, and, and certainly not a good one. And so it hasn't fallen in the ditch and now needs to be restored or recovered or renewed or dragged out of the mud and uh, washed off and, and uh, buffed up and made shiny again. In fact, we have to start right from the very beginning um, to say, what does it look like for us to uh, to be in relationship with one another. And, and that's where the language I used earlier about right relationship comes in. What does it mean for us in the human community to live in right relationship with one another? That's a better description in my mind than what does it look like for us to be reconciled since perhaps we haven't been in relationship with one another, good, bad, or ugly before. Right. Um, right. Whereas to talk about uh, for example, you and I, what, what would it look like for us to be in a good relationship with one another, to be respectful of one another, caring of one another, um, you know, to to cover one another uh, with with care and protection and um, to think well of one another, to speak well of one another, to have concern for one another's life and lifestyle and um, and and health and well-being and those kinds of things. What does that look like? Um that, it seems to me, it, it, does it ever happen perfectly? No, not at all. But but that, it seems to me, would be what we've classically perhaps missed when we use the word reconciliation and see it as an event or activity beyond which now we can say we're, we're, we're done and we're reconciled. Um, because it implies then on a day-to-day basis, I have to ask questions about, about is what I'm doing, thinking, saying, um, moving me toward a 
better relationship with this person or that group of people? Um, is it helping me to live in a in a better way with them and with myself? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I I prefer to talk about what does it look like for us to live in right relationship with one another, um, and and you know people say, well, give me some examples of that, and, and you know what what do you mean by that? And I and I always come back to say, I think as human beings, we know when we're not treating somebody well. Yes, we know when we're when we're disrespecting them, when we're cheating them or stealing from them or we, we know, you know, we may not want to admit it to anybody else. Perhaps we even struggle to admit it to ourselves, but we know that that's what conscience is about, at least in part. Uh, it, it challenges us to think differently about our activities and whether or not they're good or not good. So. So I don't think it's a matter of creating a shopping list of things that you need to do to be in right relationship, but rather think carefully. Are the things that you're doing saying um, uh, and, and involved in with with that individual um, manipulative or, or of a userous nature? Are they are they helpful to them and to you? Do they do they at the end of the day allow you to say? I'm moving towards a better relationship with that person than I was when I woke up this morning. It's it's interesting because um, here in Canada, we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And of course, that outlines steps and possibilities. But I, I love what you're saying, because in a way, it goes right down to what God has always spoken to us about. What is our heart like? If you think, if you don't think well of your brother, God looks on the heart. He looks on what's going on there. Uh, there's a quote in here that I enjoy. There's several. I mean, I've, I've loved various things that you've written here. But you say, we are not personally responsible. Indigenous people regularly hear these words or ones to their effect in discussions about multi-generational, prejudicial, social policies, treaty rights, and wrongs committed against them over successive generations, and about the possibility of reconciliation. More often than not, these words are offered by people who, while acknowledging past wrongs, want or need to find personal distance from responsibility for having maintained the environment in which these wrongs originally and now continue to take place. These are words of personal exoneration, which while they may seem reasonable and even justifiable, give voice to the idea that while they enjoy privileges provided them by the decisions of their forebearers, they hold no personal responsibility for the actions that created those privileges. I appreciate what you've been sharing, Terry, and calling us to and calling us forward. It's an important part of the leadership that you bring. Yeah, one of the, I mean, I, I vaguely recall writing that. Um, <laughs> um, it's one of the things about writing a lot of things is you sometimes forget what you wrote. Um, but I, I do recall writing that, and, and I would still... Uh, hold very much to what I wrote um, and, and think it very much the same way. Uh, um, one of the reasons that it's so easy to do that is that particularly Western societies are Western framed or Western influenced maybe is even a better way to say it, but because not every society that is Western influenced um, is, is a quote unquote Western nation, but they're influenced by Western thought in some way, shape or form. Um, 
uh, one of the critical ways in which that influence is expressed is this penchant for and, and this drive towards an unknown and unknowable future. Um, you know, it's a curious thing. No one knows what tomorrow, I mean, for that matter, I don't know what the next 10 minutes is going to bring, never mind the next uh, 10 years. Um, you know, we could, we could find ourselves um, in a very different environment than we imagine in 10 minutes time or, or 10 days or 10 years. So, so driving towards an unknown and unknowable future, um, you know, with complete disregard for oftentimes the present, never mind the past, seems to me to be an untenable um, uh, way to move forward uh, if we want to live well together. Uh, it, it ignores what's taken place in the past as if somehow now that it's over and done, we concretize it, we put it in a statue or, or uh, place the cataloged book in the shelves of the library um, at, in Ottawa or the Library of Congress or wherever else it is, and maybe consult it on occasion to see if our facts are correct. But we don't let it influence our present behavior um, in any significant way. In other words, we drive towards an unknown and unknowable future, plan for it, build for it, anticipate it, et cetera, et cetera. But we've forgotten how we got to the present moment um, once we move through it. Um, so the moment uh, comes, the moment goes, we've moved through the present, we're now into what was the future uh, an hour ago, and, and we're still driving towards the future. Uh, but the better way to do that would be to recognize that it is the past that created the present moment. Now, I'm not trying to be a determinist here. Mm -hmm. Somebody listening in might say, you're, in, you're into determinism. Well, that's not the case. I'm simply saying that the future doesn't exist for us. Now, now as followers of Christ and as people who believe in a creator in God, we, we might say, well, God knows the future from the present, from the past, and, and, and so on. Well and good. That's not us. I don't know what's going to happen in a year's time, neither do uh, any of the friends around me or people that I know. But I do know how I got here. I do know what I did uh, to get me to the present time. Um, and, it, and it is that that helps now to influence um, how I live into the future. So, so um, it, it's, it's that that I think is more important for us to stop and think about than how do we get to some unknown and unknowable future? Because that allows us to live better in the present moment and hopefully create a better future. So how did we get here? How does that help shape the way I behave now? And how will that help that future that's unknown and unknowable unfold in a better way? That's lovely. That's lovely. It reminds me of that story you shared in your in one of your your uh, articles that I was reading about your grandfather taking you fishing and you being fearful about would you know how to get back or how to return home. I I I love that. Do you want to just share that? It's kind of interesting because it does meld a little bit with what you just said. Sure. Well, it, I mean it is it it was a uh, a situation that was just my my grandfather, the one from whom I take my name, my name, LeBlanc, he's not my biological granddad, but he was the one that I, that I grew up with. And we were out fishing, he and my father and I, and um, we were going into a place that I had never been before. And I was just a young boy. Uh, and and uh, my grandfather led and I was in the middle and my father came behind and, uh, and we off, off we went into the woods, into the bush. And, and the trail closed in on us uh, as I perceived it, and I was afraid, and 
and express my concern multiple occasions. Um, I'm sure within 10 feet, one of the other uh, in my grandfather's experience. And he tried to reassure me. And then finally recognizing that I was, I was quite concerned and anxious about it. He, he put his gear down, turned around and, and knelt down and, and said to me, when you're heading on a trail that you've never been on before, um, a, a, new, a new trail, spend twice as much of your time looking over your shoulder at where you've come from as you do where you're going. That way, when you turn to take the trail home, you'll be able to recognize the landmarks as they will appear coming from the other direction. Uh, since, as I'm sure our listeners will be aware, when you head west to east on a road, it looks different than when you head east to west. The tree that was on the left is now on the right and maybe leaning away from you instead of toward you. And the pond that you crossed, um, you know, from um, from right to left might might look different. Uh, you might step down over something that you're now stepping up a, across. And all of those landmarks look very different. So. So looking at where we've come from more than we do where we're going is an important way to fix an understanding of our present moment in our minds, the way that it'll appear uh, when we need to find our way back. Um, used in, in the context of my earlier discussion, it allows us to fix ourselves in the present moment more accurately. How do we get here? What are the relationships that contributed to our current setting or current situation, um, both good, bad, and ugly, um, or all of good and ugly. Um, and, and what do we need to do about those things so that now as we move forward into whatever the future will bring, we can do it in a better way. And, and so that's helped me throughout my life to, to you know, move through present moments in better ways and to try and bring better relationships. Terry, I have so appreciated this opportunity to talk with you. And I have a feeling some of our listeners are going to go, where can I get a little bit more of Terry LeBlanc? Where can I find them? Uh, Should we send them to Nate's? Is that a place? Are there courses? Are there conversations going on? Would that be a good place? Sure. Yeah, www.naiits.com. And you'll be able to find our our, uh, learning community there, uh, courses, faculty, so one of the nice things is that you don't have to listen to me prattle on. There are some really, really, really well-framed um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks who work together with us uh, at Nate's that uh, you'd be exposed to. Okay. What we tend to do is we give our audiences links to everything we've talked about if there's something out there. So, you know, if you're listening and you would like a little bit more, I promise you that if you go into the notes for our podcast, you'll find links to the various things that Terry has uh, referenced today. Uh, Terry, it was a joy to be with you and, and you're the best person I could be talking with at this time. I loved what you opened up for us. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Karen. Bye for now. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Terry LeBlanc. For more resources related to this program, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we would be so grateful if you'd take time to give us a review or a thumbs up or pass this on to your friends and companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time.